The resurrection of Jesus is the reason for the entirety of the Christian life. Without this, without the fact that Jesus has bodily risen from the dead, all we have are a few good ideas and some nice stories. We've got some nice moral teaching maybe, some interesting riddles that a Nazarene posed 2,000 years ago, and maybe some interesting stories about fish and water and things like that. But as Paul reminded us in 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll be in this passage a little more later, he said, if Christ is not risen from the dead, what are we doing here? We're wasting our time. Why? He's, he's saying, why do I put up with all the hassle that comes with being an apostle if Christ has not risen? Which is why we make such a big deal out of this. It's, it's the whole point that Christ is risen. But, you know, there are many that think that we can benefit from the story of Easter without believing it. That we can somehow get some kind of benefit from knowing the story without actually needing it to be true. Well, today what we're going to see is not only is that impossible, first of all, but it's tragic and it's a roadmap to despair. When on the other hand, those who have actually believed that Christ has risen from the dead, they have a joy and a newness of life that cannot be touched by anything else. And as we go through this story, we're going to compare the reaction of two groups of people to the news that Jesus had risen. And there's two possible paths for us to take, one of which leads to life and to joy, and the other one that leads to despair and even to misery. And I hope that every one of us, by the time we're done, will have chosen to take the step into the newness of life that the risen Lord has promised us. Because the resurrection of Jesus means everything. So let's read these first seven verses together. Now after the Sabbath, Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. All right. So, Jesus was crucified on Friday. That's why we call it Good Friday. And they hurried to get him into the tomb before the Sabbath day, which of course was Saturday. And normally the Jews had an elaborate preparation that they would go through to embalm the body that they uh, started doing when they were in Egypt. So if you're familiar with the mummification process that the Egyptians went through, it's a similar idea. But because it was the Sabbath, they were not able to do any work on the Sabbath. So they laid Jesus in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea and rolled the big stone in front of the the tomb's entrance, and left him there. And you see, first thing, Sunday morning, these women are coming out to prepare the body for burial. But there was an earthquake. The guards were knocked down. Little side note there, the, the priests and the Pharisees and Sadducees went to Pontius Pilate and they said, now Jesus said that he'd rise from the dead. Is it okay that we put some guards in front of the tomb just to make sure nobody tries to fake a resurrection? But these Roman guards, it says, fell down. They passed out when they saw this angel. And another, other parts of the story will tell us that they fled at that point. So they come expecting to see the guards and the stone rolled in front of the tomb. But instead, they see an empty tomb and an angel testifying, He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. And that right there is the central claim of the Christian faith. Jesus died and rose again for the forgiveness of sins. You want to boil down the gospel? That's what it is. He died and rose again for the forgiveness of sins. Now, of course, we say that and there are some very supposedly smart people that want to let us know that that's a ridiculous thing to believe because people don't rise from the dead. Therefore, Jesus could not have risen from the dead. 
Well, respectfully, we understand that this is a radical thing. This is why we make a big deal out of it. Christians do not have some belief that people just pop out of the grave sometimes. It's just something that happens. This is not only unusual, it is unique that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. This is why we do all of this. And, you know, sometimes folks will try to teach you, well, that just doesn't happen. It's like, yeah, we know. That's the whole point. But it did. That's why we're here. Now, we might take some time, and I've done this in previous Easter services, so I don't want to spend a long time, but it's important for us to take some time and say, well, why do you believe this? Do you have any good reason to believe that this would happen? Well, we do. And if you've got a pen and pencil, we're going to write down a few things that let us know why we can believe this to be true. If you've ever seen the movie, A Few Good Men, there's a line in there where he says, these are the facts of the case and they are undisputed. So we're going to start with that. Here are the things that everybody agrees on. And we'll see once we lay these out, it's, it's really not so amazing as you might think. Number one, we believe that Jesus of Nazareth was a real person. He lived. He was a moral teacher. He was a miracle worker. And these are things just about everybody can agree upon, that Jesus lived. There was a push decades ago to say that there was no such thing as the historical Jesus. And Christian apologists and historians have had a field day with that theory. It is no longer widely accepted despite what the internet might tell you. Jesus was a real person. He was not just made up. Everyone's like, well, that's a pretty basic one. You're right. Let's move on to the next one. Number two, Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. This is about as verifiable as anything can be verified historically. There are other testimonies to this outside of the scripture, although the scripture should not be discounted, that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Number three, that he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. This is part of the story. And again, this is super basic, but it matters. That not only did he die, but he was buried, and we know which tomb he was buried in, even though we don't know the location necessarily. Number four, his tomb was empty on the third day. This is another undisputed thing. This is a fact. His tomb was empty. Now you realize, no, we're not at resurrection yet, but his tomb was empty after they put him in it. Number five, his disciples claimed that he had risen from the dead. That's pretty fair and undisputed, right? The disciples claimed that the tomb was empty because he had risen from the dead. That is the case. And number six, the church lives and dies by this claim. The church not only lives for this truth, we're living for it right now, almost 2,000 years later, but countless millions of Christians have died for this fact, including the 12 apostles themselves, with the exception of John, although he was, they attempted to kill him several times and the Lord miraculously preserved him. The church lives and dies by this fact. So you must reckon with these things unless you are some kind of belligerent skeptic that isn't going to accept anything normal to the conversation. And listen, those exist. There are people that went, well, I don't even believe that Jesus lived. Well, then you have to explain to me where all this came from. Well, some folks made it up. Well, then why were they being willingly going to the lions and being ripped apart for it? It's like, wait a minute, I made this up and now I'm about to get killed for it. No, thank you. We believe that Jesus died. Okay, fair. We believe that he was buried. We believe that the tomb was empty because if the tomb wasn't empty, all the Pharisees, Sadducees, what it had to do is that there's his tomb and there's his body. And the disciples claimed he'd risen from the dead, and they were willing to die for it. Well, they all hallucinated. Oh, okay. What's more likely at this point, that we all hallucinated the same thing? The church has lived and died on that claim. And we want to say, well, I don't have any proof. Well, let me ask you something. If something happened almost 2,000 years ago, what kind of proof could you possibly expect to have? Now, think about that. I'm being honest here. If something happened that long ago, how are you supposed to know that it happened? The only thing you could hope for is that somebody who saw it wrote it down. Because we don't have anything else from that long ago. And that's exactly what we have. We have reliable eyewitness testimony. Well, the Bible was written 500 years after this. That's not true. That has been so thoroughly debunked that I'll, I'll refer you to some good apologists and, and other folks if you want to look into that. 
Not only that, but the folks who believe in this stuff have what you could call a verified spiritual experience. We encounter the living God when we put our faith in these things. We're going to talk about that today. So you've got to account for those things, whatever your position is going to be. And you say, well, that just doesn't happen. Yes, we know that just doesn't happen. But we have as much evidence as you could hope for, for anything that happened almost 2,000 years ago. Not only that, but Jesus himself and the Old Testament prophets had predicted this. Why does that matter? Because folks will say, well, the Christians made all this stuff up afterwards. Jesus died. They didn't know what to do. They wanted to keep his legend going, so they made this up. Well, that might work, except for the Bible had been building up to this for thousands of years. The Bible was not written all at once. You all know that, right? It was written over a long span of time. Psalm 16, verse 10. David wrote this. He said, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. If you don't know what Sheol is, think Hades. The, the, the Greek understanding of the underworld, the place where the dead goes. The Hebrew version was called Sheol. And David wrote in Psalm 16.10, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption, writing prophetically about his son, Jesus Christ. The New Testament makes a lot of use out of that verse. Jesus himself in John chapter 10, he said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. That's like the most manly thing that anybody has ever said, if you ask me. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down, and when I want, I'm going to pick it back up again. I love that. Jesus was talking about his resurrection before he died. Well, the apostles probably made that up. You have no proof of that. You're just saying that. The prophets predicted it, Jesus predicted it, and that's exactly what is recorded that happened on Easter Sunday. Not only that, but after this, the church exploded. These people went out into the streets and the highways and byways proclaiming this message, being driven out from among their countrymen, being beaten to death, being stoned, being fed to wild animals, being tortured and crucified for this message. The qualification for an apostle was to be able to testify to the resurrection. When they were replacing Judas and they were going to bring in Matthias, the, the people they were looking for were someone who saw the risen Lord because that was the key point and still is today. And we're here celebrating the resurrection, just as important now as it was then. So we have this fact that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. We have as much to commend it to us as true as we could possibly ask, sort of a video recording from 2,000 years ago. People who saw it wrote it down. It was prophesied beforehand, and the church lived and died by it. You can react to this truth one of two ways. Ultimately, you cannot go back and verify or debunk it because we can't go back in time. It's, it requires a step of faith. But you know, how you react to this truth tells us whether or not it is true. Jesus taught us this, right? He said, you know things and judge them by their fruit. He compares people and ideas to seeds. That when you plant them, the kind of fruit they produce lets you know what kind of seed it was. So let's look at the way in this story two different groups of people reacted to this and say, well, that evidence may or may not count. I don't know if I believe it, whatever. Okay, well, let's talk about what happens when you do plant the seed. Verse 8 through 10, let's read these now. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear, a little bit of fear, you can understand that, right? You went to your friend's grave and he wasn't there and there was an angel talking to you. And great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. So these women rushed to go tell the grief-stricken disciples, full of joy, full of fear, got to tell somebody. And along the way, they encounter the risen Lord Jesus. The Gospel of John tells us that Mary Magdalene was the first person to see him alive. And he tells them, do not be afraid. Imagine their joy. 
Your friend that you watched tortured and die is alive and telling you, don't be afraid. And they fell down at his feet and they worshipped him. This is important because folks will tell you Jesus never claimed to be God. They never worshipped Jesus. That's not true. Here they are worshiping him. Whenever an angel was bowed down to or worshiped by somebody, that angel would pop the dude upside the head and say, don't bow down to me. I'm not, I'm not anybody for you to worship. They would bow down to worship the apostles, and the apostles would say the same thing. Peter said, I have no power on my own, but Jesus Christ himself would receive worship because he was God, very God, as the old creed says. And 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus appeared many times over 40 days until his ascension. Paul tells us that at one point he appeared to more than 500 people at once. And at the time of the writing of 1 Corinthians, which is in the 50s AD, about 20-some years later, he said, you can go talk to him if you want to. It's pretty cool, huh? We can't do that anymore because, you know, it's been a long time. But he said, if you want to go and, and talk to folks that saw him, they'll tell you. And he gives a long list of all the people that saw Jesus alive, including his brother James, who had despised Jesus for playing Messiah and abandoning the family, but James became the pastor of the church in Jerusalem after Jesus rose from the dead. This is the Christian reaction to the resurrection. We believe it to be true. That's what it means to be an evangelical Christian. We believe that these things are literally true. When we say that Jesus rose from the dead, it's not some strange spiritualistic sounding thing that he's alive in my heart and that's all that matters. Okay, that might be true, but I'm not really interested in what sounds nice. I believe that Jesus bodily, literally rose from the dead. That's what Christians believe. Paul put it, I've been referencing it a lot. Let's, let's look at 1 Corinthians 15 a little bit. I'm going to read verses 3 and 4 and then 14 and 17. That whole chapter is worth your time. But Paul says this, I deliver to you as of first importance. So whatever we're about to say is of first importance. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. There's all those things we were talking about, right? He died for our sins and he rose from the dead. Now here's verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. As long as it helps me through life, Paul goes, forget that. It's in vain. It means nothing. You're believing a lie. And verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile or useless and you're still in your sins. Well, God still forgives us. It doesn't matter if Jesus rose from the dead. Not according to the Apostle Paul. This is the Christian position, and it has not changed across 2,000 years of church history. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead. It's the reason we're here. And this is a position of faith, right? We've been saying that. I'm not going to deny that. But the fruit proves the quality of the seed that we're planting. So when we believe the resurrection, Jesus coming back to life, the Bible says many times that he also gives us life. So I'm going to give us today three kinds of life that we find when we put our faith in the risen Lord. And I believe these things are a, an outstanding testimony to the truth of the resurrection. Because if believing this can do these kinds of things, then maybe there's something to it after all. Number one, newness of life. The Bible says that when we embrace the testimony of Jesus Christ, we are given newness of life. Romans chapter 6 talks about this a lot. It says that when we believe in Christ's death, we die with him. And then we are raised with him to walk in newness of life. This is the image of baptism. We die, go down under the water. We come out of the water to newness of life. And this is a life characterized by freedom from sin. What does newness of life mean? It means you live a life free from sin. To believe in the resurrection is to find life apart from guilt and shame and hurt because of sin. If we believe that our sins have been forgiven, that they're no longer being held against us, what does that do to your spirit? What does that do to the anxious person? What does that do to the depressed person or the fearful person when you know that all those things are not being held against you? The things that you've done in your past that even to this day bring shame to you when you think about them, to know that all that shame was put on Jesus at the cross and now you live apart from that shame by his resurrection. 
even the sins that were done to you, that hurt you and have driven your life on a course that you never would have chosen for yourself. Jesus comes and heals all of that because it's been paid for at the cross. This is an internal change. The Holy Spirit comes in and speaks peace to your heart. There are people that will do any number of amazing, remarkable things for peace. They'll go on any trip. They'll listen to any guru. They'll take any drug. They'll try anything to have peace in their heart. And yet Jesus Christ offers it freely. And the Christian who believes in the death and resurrection of Jesus has that peace for free. And the world looks at us and they scoff and they say, that can't possibly be true, but it is true. When you're in the, in the church and we're singing of what Jesus has done and we're sharing in the communion as we're going to do later today, and you remember that all of your sin has been washed away, there is nothing like the relief to your soul that comes in. Oh, I've dealt with anxiety and stress and depression before. It's, it's intolerable to not be able to sleep, to not be able to think, to not be able to focus, not be able to have joy on anything. And sometimes all you want in those moments is quiet. I just want my brain to shut up and let me think and go about my day. But what the Lord does is he says, you cling to me and you cling to the fact that all those things that are causing you fear and pain have been paid for at the cross. There's nothing like the joy that you find there. And I'll tell you, I came out of that season. I don't know how I would have if I didn't have Jesus to cling to. Number two, he gives us abundant life. Abundant life. John 10, 10, Jesus said, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. So first of all, we have peace. But second of all, we have joy. This is talking about the quality of life that you gain when you put your faith in Jesus. There are so many. It's unfortunate that I have a picture of Christianity that when you become a Christian, Life just begins to be boring and dull, and they talk about how Christians can never have any fun. Don't get religion until you're old and you've finished all your fun. <laughs> when I started working for the company that I worked for, it was a junk removal company, and the first day I met one of my coworkers, and he says, hey, this is Tyler, and, and he's, a, he's a pastor. And the guy says, you're a pastor? How old are you? And I was 28 at the time. He goes, ain't you got some sinning to do left? He was like, what, what would you, why would you become a Christian now? Don't you have some sinning to do? And you got to, oh, I guess it's time to gotta grow up and get, go to the boring church and never have any fun ever again. That is not what happens when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, listen, you might have to let go of a few weird adolescent fantasies that you've been holding on since you were 12. But that's not the same thing. Life in Christ is full of color. It's full of joy. Jesus said, I've come that you might have abundant life. And listen, there are Christians that don't get the gospel that want to walk around and make you miserable and slap you around and say, if you're having fun, it's because you're sinning and you're doing something wrong, which is not the case. The Bible says that we possess all things in Christ and that we sanctify things by using them. Isn't that cool? That it's not that, oh, I'm going to be corrupted. No, when you use things as a Christian, you make them holy. That's the effect you have on the life around you. You read through the Psalms. It talks about the joy of life, the joy of marriage and of children, the joy of even food and drink and music and laughter and art and community and family. That's abundant life in Christ. All the things that the world loves to gripe about. Well, the small town is dead and everybody's isolated and alone and we don't have community, we don't have family, we don't have role models and we don't have anybody to raise up the next generation. Listen, I've got all that. It's called the Church of Jesus Christ. I've got all those things still. We find pleasure even in the little things of life. And not only do you have pleasure, the Bible says at the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. But not only that, you have purpose in life. Purpose. It's interesting, a few years ago, Christians were talking an awful lot about purpose, right? That was our buzzword, you know. Purpose, God gives you purpose, and they made fun of us. Now you've got a world drifting without purpose and doesn't know what to do with themselves. All of a sudden, the claims of the church seem prophetic, don't they? I have a reason to live. I have a reason to get up in the morning. I have a reason to stay married and be faithful to my wife. I have a reason to be good to my kids. I have a reason to be joyful, 
Wake up in the morning and you have those early morning, you know, those 5.30 a.m. thoughts. Like, why, why am I getting out of bed? What's the point of anything anyway? You know, what's the point of eating breakfast? We're just going to have to have lunch later. You know, that's, you get those thoughts. But you remember that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and now your life has a purpose. And it's not just go to church every week. That's not your purpose in life. Church is to gear you up and get you ready to go out and live the purpose God's given you during the week. Everything the world longs for about life, we have in Christ Jesus. And people want to complain, well, I don't get to go out and get drunk like I used to. Oh, poor you. <laughs> it's kind of silly, the things that we throw out. That's why I said adolescent, because that's kind of what we are, aren't we? Oh, I'm not going to get to have sex with as many people as I wanted. Okay. So What? The Lord's got something better for you. Abundant life. And number three, everlasting life. Newness of life, peace, abundant life, joy, everlasting life, hope. The penalty for sin is death. But Romans 6.23 tells us that the gift of God is everlasting life. John 3.16, that's why God sent his son Jesus, that we might have everlasting life. We have the hope of a future resurrection. Read it in the Bible that someday the Lord is going to raise up the church bodily. You know, some people are hoping for reincarnation. That kind of freaks me out a little bit, to be honest with you. What if you're going to be reborn as something awful? You know, reborn as a slug or a crow or something like that. I'm waiting for a resurrection. A bodily resurrection, not some weird, floaty, ethereal ghosts in heaven strumming our harps. No, no, no. The Bible says you will be resurrected in a glorified body with a brand new world to live in without sin. My kids are asking me all the time, will we get to play baseball in heaven? And my answer is, I don't see why not. <laughs> Colton asked me yesterday, we watched a documentary about Africa, and he said, will God let me ride a cheetah in heaven? I said, maybe in the new world when God creates it, I'm sure God will let you ride all the cheetahs you want, Colt. It's weird how we think of heaven as more boring than this life, isn't it? You think there's boredom in heaven? God has four-faced angels. You think that it's boring up there? Hope of resurrection. And the Bible says to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord, that your spirit will be comforted with God. That hope transforms your life. Not only does it give us peace, that everything's going to be okay someday. Not only does it drive us forward, like, hey, I've got something I'm living for. I'm waiting for that day. But it also, you know what it does? It makes us brave. We don't fear death like normal men do. You can't bribe us. You can't batter us. You can't deceive us. Because like, listen, you can kill me. That's my hope anyway. Church history talks about people like Ignatius who were eager to be martyred. Because he's like, I, I get to have that glorious entrance into the kingdom of heaven. He's like, yeah, pray for me, but you know what? If I have to get eaten by a lion, that's fine. Because I get to go see Jesus. And the older you get and the more close friends and family you lose, the more precious that hope becomes to you, isn't it? We're going to see them again. And people say things like, well, that doesn't help us in the right now. That's a, that's a pie-in-the-sky religion. You know what 1 Corinthians 15, 19 says? It says, if we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If the only thing Jesus gives us in this life is this church, he says, then that's kind of pathetic, isn't it? Especially for the Christians in China that are being driven underground and being killed and put in concentration camps for it. Well, I, well it's supposed to help you make your life better. Well, it's not making their life better. It's making it worse. But it's, it's a foolish way to think anyway because hope of a future eternity with Christ does change the way you live this life. It reminds you that you've got a judge you're going to face someday. And so it makes you righteous and it makes you treat other people well. It reminds you that your loved ones are going to be reunited with you someday. And so when death and pain comes, you're able to bear it with even a smile on your face. Newness of life, freedom from guilt, that's peace. Abundant life. The ability to enjoy every minute of your existence with a fresh eyes, that's joy. And eternal life, the hope of resurrection with Christ one day, that's hope. Those things are worth more than gold. There are people that would kill to have those things. But you know what? We have them. We have them as Christians. 
Sometimes I watch on TV or online and I hear people talking about, we've got to search for meaning, we've got to search for joy and search for hope. And I just want to scream at the screen and say, I know where you can find those things. And then you say, Jesus Christ offers you that, and then they want to go off on some kick about how organized religion never helped anybody. And I think that these things that we have give a strong support to the truth of the resurrection. There are folks that say, you know, it's very fascinating that people who believe in the resurrection seem to feel better about their life. And they say things like, maybe we should find a way to help people believe in other interesting things. They never stop to think that maybe the reason that people's lives improve when they believe in the resurrection is because the resurrection is true. You know, believing that God loves you really changes your life. No, it doesn't. The fact that God loves you changes your life. I believe that God loves me. Well, you can believe that lots of people love you, but if they don't, you're just going to get your heart broken, huh? You ever do that when you were in school? I know she loves me. She just is too shy to say anything. And then you finally take a step out there and she slaps you down. Turns out she didn't love you after all. Your hope was in vain, as Paul would say. But the Bible says that because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross and the empty tomb, we have a hope that will never put us to shame. And if you're in Jesus Christ, you can hear it in the room. Y'all know this to be true. You know this. You're "You're just talking about my life, man. Thanks for reminding me. I'm going to go out and enjoy this beautiful day that the Lord's given us. Let me ask you this question. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, where do you find those things? Where do you get your peace from? Where do you get your joy from? Where's your hope? Let's look at verses 11 through 15. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So in contrast to these women, we see the chief priests and the guards who know what happened. They know what happened but they choose to cover it up. They knew this. They knew that they had seen an angel come and scare them so bad that they passed out and that the stone was rolled away and that his body was gone. They go back and tell the priests. The priests hear the story and they bribe them. They collude together to propagate a lie to protect their own interests. The interest of the soldiers being, we allowed the man we were guarding to get away. There was a death penalty associated with that. And for the priests, you think, well, why why wouldn't they want people to know about this? The same reason they crucified Jesus in the first place. Because they were envious of him. They were envious of the love the people had for him. And how they went after him. And they were afraid that if Jesus stirs up the people, Rome is going to crack down on Jerusalem. So they had political motivations to cover this up. So you can see, well, everybody knows that the disciples stole the body. Yeah, the disciples knew that story too. And they included it in the scriptures. And you say, well, how could they know that the priests bribed the soldiers? Because if you read in the book of Acts, many of the priests later got saved. I'm sure they told. This was known. This is the world's reaction. To reject the resurrection. At most, you treat it like a mystery Something just to be thought about and pondered and then forgotten when you go out to get lunch. But at worst is a monstrous lie that's got to be eradicated. There are those that believe that. And there are many variations of the rejection of the resurrection, but they all bear the same fruit. We talked about how accepting the truth of the gospel bears good fruit in your life. Let's look at the fruit of those who have rejected this truth. I saw four motivations that more or less characterized a person's rejection of this. Number one, there's anger. Anger at the gospel. Demanding it be silenced. There are some world religions that violently try to suppress the preaching of the gospel. But there are some that they don't belong to any religion, but they're angry at Christians and they should not be allowed to teach those things. And it's always atheists, which baffles me. Because if you're an atheist, you believe none of it makes sense anyway, so why do you care if we teach it? If you believe that there is no afterlife, that there is nothing that's going to 
change whether or not you believe it, then why do you care what I do on a Sunday morning? There's anger, demanding that it be silenced. Number two, there's indifference. People that just don't care. They don't think about it. They don't worry about it. Ah, what difference does it make? Believe it if you want to. Believe not. Who cares? Well, that's kind of a foolish thing to say about something as monumental as the resurrection. Big, significant things demand a decision. And there's no, you don't get any extra coolness or intellectual points for not making a decision on the broad issues, you know. We don't like people who stand in the middle. Ah, whatever. Do whatever you want. Number three, there's selfishness. These are people that, that take the gospel and they whittle it to fit their own design. Yeah, I want to go to heaven, but I also want to be able to do whatever I want. So I'll have this almost back and forth thing where some days I'll believe it and some days I won't. And some days I'll, I'll have these arguments ready so that if I want to defend myself against a Christian that wants to call me to holiness. Yeah, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Adjusting it for their own. This is different from the indifferent person. Because a selfish person wants to have the benefits of the gospel with none of the responsibility that comes along with the gospel. And number four, there's arrogance. And this is the one I've seen more lately. And I, I, these people would probably not call themselves arrogant, but it's exactly the case. These are people who view the resurrection as a symbolic reality. doesn't matter if it happened or not. What matters is that we understand what it means. There's some sort of psychological or mental or so-called spiritual meaning to be found there. As long as we understand the allegory of the resurrection, it really doesn't matter if it happened or not. Again, a foolish thing to say. These are people that want to try to get, again, the benefits of believing it without looking foolish to the world by actually believing it. The priests and the soldiers conspired to conceal the truth. They chose the least plausible but most convenient path. And this is what happens every day. People find a reason to reject the gospel. They don't sit there and pile up reasons. They find one. Some examples would be, if I don't believe in the gospel, people will still think I'm smart. If I don't believe in the resurrection, I'll still come across as a tough guy. If I don't believe in the resurrection, then I can go out and party every night. That's why people reject the gospel, you know, don't you? It's not because of profound arguments. You see this, even folks that are big-time opponents of Christianity, and they even write books, and they make videos blasting Christians, you catch them in a moment of honesty, and almost all of them will say, well, let me explain to you my story. And there's always, maybe the church hurt their family at some point back in the day. Or maybe I had a crazy relative that believed in some wacky version of Christianity, and I didn't want anything to do with that. Or they start talking about some sin that they like to engage in. Well, I, I would believe all this, but you know, I'm gay, and so I, I just can't accept this. It's not because of evidence. There are heart issues. This is where the battle is to be fought. We have a heart issue. It's not, well, I was convinced. It's, it's never the case. I've never seen anybody convinced into becoming a Christian. I've never seen anybody convinced out of becoming a Christian. There's always a moral or internal reason for it. And the sad thing, though, is that those who reject God, for whatever the reason is, who reject His Son, who reject the resurrection, they find themselves without peace and joy and hope, without purpose in life. You're ending up with a world where there is no God, God does not intervene, God does not care, God does not love you, there is nothing after this life, and your flesh is all you've got. That's a, that's a sad way to live. And the church has been sounding the alarm on this for a long time and been made fun of for it. Saying, if you guys are just going to believe that everything is just atoms and time smashing together, what you're going to end up with is people who believe there is no purpose to life, and therefore you're going to end up with this nihilistic streak, and people are going to be depressed and anxious and afraid. And they said, you just hate science. That's your problem. And we've come a few decades later, and it's exactly the case. There is a crisis of meaning. Well, I'm an ubermensch. I can create my own meaning. No, you can't. Because we've been trying, and it's not working. And the people I have found who are the most belligerent in insisting that there is no purpose in life and there is no meaning and stop believing those foolish things, I'm smarter than you so I can accept this, those are the most oppressed, the most anxious, the most fearful, and the most broken people. 
well, that's just the cross I've got to bear. No, it's not, because I'm not bearing that burden. Even those who try to appropriate the trappings of Jesus. I've seen this. There, there's, a, there's a trend right now where people that, for cultural reasons, want to hang on to the gospel, hang on to the Bible, hang on to the stories. But they're finding that it doesn't work for them. I don't get it. I'm believing all the stories. I'm reading the Bible. I'm talking about Jesus. I even go to church. But I'm not experiencing the joy and the peace and the love. And we say, well, why don't you actually believe these things? Well, that, that seems unnecessary. It's not working for you, is it? And if this is what those have without the gospel, shouldn't we take a second look at the resurrection itself? I just can't believe that somebody would rise from the dead. All right. But let's leave that aside. The ones who believe that have found incredible purpose and meaning and joy in their lives. And the ones that have rejected that are out there trying to find it in what they call the vast emptiness of space. And we're just specks that mean nothing. And what's the point of living anyway? I hold out to you today and proclaim it as a truth that Christ is risen indeed. And that changes everything. For those who believe, it's peace, it's joy, it's hope. For those who reject it, it's shame, it's bitterness, it's fear. Jesus said in John 20, verse 29, he said this to Doubting Thomas when he finally believed. He said, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed, that word in the Bible, you could translate it, oh, how happy are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The Bible knows that you've got to take this on faith. That's why we call it the faith. It's kind of interesting to me. You can see the pervasive influence of Christianity in our culture because people refer to different faiths, which is hilarious because other religions don't place an emphasis on faith. They place an emphasis on culture. They place an emphasis on the rituals. It's Christianity that calls it the faith because we believe we are saved by grace through faith. But there is fruit that compels us toward those things. How do I know this apple tree is an apple tree? I didn't see the seed when it was planted, but can you see the apples on the tree? Why do we dismiss this so quickly if those who receive Christ find their lives so utterly transformed and changed for the better? Well, they're not all that way. Yeah, you're right. Okay? But I'll tell you this, if you find a miserable Christian, I will show you someone who has not fully realized the resurrection yet. And this is part of my job as a pastor. We did this last week in our week of prayer to keep bringing you back and reminding you and teaching you of the truths of these things. You ever known a Christian that has followed Jesus for their whole life, like for decades and decades and decades? You meet these people, that they're not found anywhere else. It's almost like they live above the fray of life. Like nothing can touch them anymore because they've lived in that joy and peace so long that it just flows out of them. You don't find that anywhere else. Well, there's a lot of bad Christians. Yes, there are. But you know what? You've got in your lap what we call the Bible. And it tells us how to evaluate Christians. It's not just us going back and say, oh, sorry, turns out that that was wrong and we shouldn't have done that. People talk about the evolution of Christianity. There is no evolution of Christianity. What you have is constant corruption interrupted by periods of what we call revival. Anytime Christianity has advanced, as we say, go look at it more closely. It's a return to the beginning every time. Ah, the Crusades, ah, slavery, ah, whatever. None of that was okay. And if you go back in time, by the way, you will find born-again believers every time calling it out and getting mocked and shamed for it. The true Christian church has always been the moral voice in our society. Well, they're not doing it today. Yes, we are. But every generation cannot appreciate the prophets of its own time, can they? If you're a miserable Christian, you have not fully grasped the resurrection. Because the resurrection brings us, as the Bible says, joy unspeakable. You know, Blaise Pascal, the great philosopher, who was a believer, he gave what's called Pascal's wager. And this is how it's often put out there, that it's better to believe in God because if you believe in God and it turns out that God is not real, you haven't lost anything. But if you don't believe in God and it turns out God is real, you're in big trouble. That's Pascal's wager. But there's another level to that. 
And this is how I want to frame it today, more of an, what you might call an existential way. If you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will encounter that abundant life. And if it comes to the end of your life, and it turns out that none of it was true, you have lived a good life and lost nothing. But if you reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, you spend your whole life scrambling and searching for meaning and purpose and dealing with that fear and that bitterness and that crisis that comes at the end of your life, and then it turns out you could have lived with the joy of Christ and didn't? How heartbreaking is that? I lose nothing by chasing after Jesus and raising my family to follow Christ. I get mocked for it. I get shamed for it. I get hated for it, especially when I was a younger man. When I was a kid, I, I never had a period of rebellion, right? Everybody says, oh, everyone's got to rebel sometime. No, I didn't. Maybe that makes me boring. I don't know. But I got mocked. I got laughed at. I got shamed. Now, getting on to be 30 years old, those same people that were laughing at me and shaming me are the ones that call me and say, I, I, I envy your life, man. I wish I had, oh, you're so lucky. And I tell them, I'm not lucky. I'm doing what Jesus said. I'm doing what the Lord has told us to do. And God is giving me abundant life. You can have it too. I want to give it to you. And they say, well, uh, I guess it probably doesn't work for everybody. It's like, well, you've never tried it, so you wouldn't know. Well, I've tried it. It didn't work for me. No, you didn't. Well, I was a kid. I grew up in the church. No, you didn't. It's a lifelong commitment to Jesus Christ. Jesus wants us to live life fully, free from guilt, free from shame, with the hope of the resurrection. And the fact that Jesus has risen is our proof and testimony that we will rise with him someday. So why don't you take that leap of faith and believe? Some of you are standing on the edge right now. You're saying, I, I want to, but I've spent so much time being an opponent of these things that it would be embarrassing for me. Really? You can let that keep you out of the kingdom of heaven? So, oh, this is great. It's good that they're still preaching like this and you have every intention of going back to your same old life and living the same old way. Don't be deceived into thinking that you're somehow on the team because you like the message. And I'm going to tell you this. This is a joyful day. But I'm going to be serious for a minute. The resurrection and the call to salvation is not just some Hallmark card, nice, smiling invitation. Oh, why don't you come on with us? It's not just you're, you're all hanging out at the same pool party and we're saying, come in the water, it's great. But if you don't, you know, it's fine. It is a sovereign demand from God that you kneel at his feet and call him Lord. You have offended God. You are full of sin and you know it. Well, I'm not a sinner. Yes, you are. Don't play games with me. Your sins have not come from outside you. They come from within you. And that is is what put Jesus on the cross. That's what you deserved. And you deserve eternal hell for that. You ever burn your hand once? I love going out and barbecuing in the backyard. You ever burn your hand? You ever accidentally touch the iron when it's hot? And you get the blister on your finger and that pain that just won't go away. And you're trying to go to sleep at night, but you can't. Imagine that forever, everywhere, all the time. The Bible says the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. But here's the good news. God stepped in to save you. God loved you so much, he was willing to put the penalty on his own son, Jesus, so that he could offer it to you freely. Well, I don't need nobody's charity. Yes, you do. You can't save yourself. You need it to be that easy to believe and receive. Romans 10 verse 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, not your buddy, not your homeboy, not your friend, your Lord. And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. This could be your day of salvation, where you finally start to leave that guilt and shame behind, all the stuff that keeps you awake at night, that keeps you unscrewing the top of that bottle, that keeps you going out and keeps the music up nice and loud keeps the video games on, that keeps the girls around or keeps the guys around, whatever it is, that keeps you fighting, that keeps you yelling, to drown it out, you can face it and watch Jesus Christ take it on his own shoulders. And you'll feel that spiritual relief that no one else can encounter and enter into the joy and the hope of life in Christ Jesus. 
The reasons we say that we don't want to be saved are so silly. Well, the culture has moved on from religion, and it's just time to put all those things away. Yes, we have. We've put away religion. How's it working for us? How's it going? How's the family doing now that we've rejected Jesus? How's marriage going now that we've rejected Jesus? How's anything? Are we, are we happier? Are we happier? Are we more joyful? More peaceful? Are we kinder to one another? Are we less violent? Are we more content? I urge you to come and be saved. And saved is the word because you are in deep danger and you're not promised tomorrow. You can become a Christian. What is a Christian? Somebody that believes this stuff. That Jesus died and rose again. And you can find that life. And if you are a Christian and you've forgotten some of these things, this is your day to come back and put it at the center of your life. Anybody that complains, God has let me down, talk to them for a few minutes and what has happened, they shoved God to the perimeter of their life, they got hit and they blamed God. We celebrate today because we have the joy as Christians of those who have found what everyone else is looking for. Can we just delight in that for a minute? We've found what the rest of the world is looking for. What they're climbing up mountains on their knees in Nepal looking for. What they're going to school and getting degree after degree after degree to try and find. We found what they're looking for when they take drugs to attain an altered state of mind. We found what they're looking for when they bounce from relationship to relationship trying to find the thing that's going to bring them joy and peace. We found it. We found the thing that people go and lie down on therapist's couch for years and years and years to try to find. We have it in Christ Jesus because he died on the cross and he rose from the dead for the forgiveness of sins. Come on, amen. That's a joyful thing. And we stand in a long tradition of godly men and women that have withstood every wave of persecution and anger for 2,000 years. The church that has buried empires and kingdoms and outlasted every critic who said, well, that's it for Jesus. Because Christ is risen and nothing will ever be the same. And if you put your faith in Christ today, you'll never be the same either.